Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Good morning and welcome to our next class on the Shmona Esrei. So happy to see you all here. Okay, so we are beginning a new bracha, the bracha on forgiveness, the sixth bracha called Slicha. And just a little bit of a review because this bracha really does go together with the one before it, the class that we had on Tshuva. Interestingly, the sixth bracha is uh, Avav, right? And Vav is always the letter of connection. Vav means and. It also is, is shaped like a, a hook, right? And the idea is that tshuva and forgiveness, slicha, go together. And that, of course, Hashem is always looking to reconnect with us. And that is the power of tshuva and forgiveness, whether it's between us and Hashem or us and other people. What we do is we draw close, we, we uh, access the world of connection, and we leave behind the world of estrangement. And um, so a little bit more about tshuva, they kind of are interweaved with each other. So Hashem created tshuva before he created the world. And uh, this is what uh, Jewish tradition teaches us, because Hashem, of course, knows better than anyone that the way he created us and the human condition is that we make mistakes, that we distance ourselves from Hashem. As the Gemara says, a person only sins when a ruach shtus comes upon them, when they're seized by a moment of insanity or delusion. And of course, Hashem gives us the choice whether to live in delusion, uh, you know, creating other realities or the choice of returning to him and living in a more real, so to speak, you know, living in the real world. So there's two general types of averas, mistakes, sins, whichever word resonates with you. There are, you know, many uh, words to describe different types of sins, but the general idea, especially in this bracha that we're going to see, is that there's intentional sins and there's unintentional sins. There's things that we do, you know, because we know we shouldn't, but we do them anyway. And then, there, of course, there are veras that we do that we didn't mean to do. Maybe we didn't know about them. Maybe we were somehow forced into doing them. So these are considered unintentional. And just another foundational idea, there's two ways to understand the basis of all mitzvot. So the first is that the mitzvot are coming as commands from the king. And of course, if the king is telling you what to do, this is meant to engender within you discipline and compliance. And of course, when you listen to what the king tells you to do, you are rewarded. Um, and, and that reward comes from accepting the authority of the king. When you do otherwise, you are punished for rebellion. And this is obviously the way all kings uh, you know, acted in, in certain countries, certainly still today, people understand very clearly that if they defy the government, if they go against the king of whatever 
country it is where they really enforce these kind of things today, then, you know, it's off with your head. And this is one of the ways that we are supposed to view our relationship with Hashem, that he is the ultimate king and he has all the power. And of course, if you're a good subject and you do his will, then things will be good for you. And if not, then watch out, right? He's not going to stand for it. So that's the idea of Hashem as Melech. Now, we always usually think about the other uh, personification of God as our father. But in this case, um, the Rambam says we should also think about misquote as the advice of a doctor, right? A doctor wants you to be well. So he gives you advice. He says, you know what? Stay away from this kind of food. Make sure that you exercise, you know, three times a week. Take these vitamins. And the advice of the doctor is there for its own intrinsic good for you to do it. Because if you follow the advice of the doctor, you'll be healthy. You'll be well. And if you don't choose not to, then, you know, the consequences of that come from you yourself. And it won't be good for you. It will be harmful. So this is another way in which we can view mitzvot. Okay, so this uh, next bracha, as we said, is all about forgiveness. And forgiveness is a huge topic. And forgiveness, I would say, I, I don't know whether it's my quote or somebody else's, but forgiveness, I believe, is the greatest gift that you can give yourself and others. You know, when we don't forgive ourselves, we often become paralyzed. When we don't forgive ourselves, we make it very difficult to be able to do tshuva because not only do we have our own self-loathing, but we can't imagine that Hashem would want us back, that Hashem would want connection with us. And this, of course, is a huge impediment and obstacle to being able to return to our true selves and to return into the loving embrace of our father, our supreme parent, and all of that implies. So, you know, being able to forgive oneself is, is a very important piece of uh, wholeness, of shlemut, of tshuva. And of course, being able to forgive others, well, that is a whole sugya on its own. Just for those of you who were with me, we did a whole series called Hakpada which is how to get rid of internalized anger and resentment. Because the Torah tells us, uh, uh, you're not allowed to hate somebody in your heart. And it tells us that we can't take revenge, that we can't bear a grudge. And so, you know, it's obvious, there's a saying that if Hashem commanded us to do something, it means that we have the ability to be able to do it. And so even if it might take a long time and it's a process, depending on how deeply hurt and insulted we've been, forgiveness is definitely a Jewish, um, a, a Jewish um, virtue, a Jewish virtue. Yeah, actually, maybe I'll read to you now from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Actually, in the... This week's Parsha, I just finished his the Chomish Bereshis, and he talks a lot about forgiveness. So it was perfect for my class. He says, what transforms the human situation from tragedy to hope is the possibility of forgiveness. 
and he's quoting from uh, Hannah Arendt. Okay, I can't remember what the name of her famous book was, um, something to do with the Holocaust. Um, anyway, basically he says that, um, you know, how do you undo what you've already done? He who acts never quite knows what he is doing, that he always becomes guilty of consequences he never intended or even foresaw, that no matter how disastrous the consequences of, of, of his deed, he can never undo it. All this is reason enough to turn away with despair from the realm of human affairs and to hold in contempt the human capacity for freedom. And this is where, uh, so without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, our capacity act would, as it were, be confined to one single deed from which we could never recover. Okay, I'm not going to read that. This is what I want to read. Atonement and forgiveness are the supreme expressions of human freedom. The freedom to act differently in the future than one did in the past. And the freedom not to be trapped in a cycle of vengeance and retaliation. Only those who can forgive can be free. And when I read that line, I thought about Edith Eger, who wrote the book, The Choice. Many people have read the book. Many people have heard her speak. It seems that as she's getting older and on in years, people are interviewing her more and more because she basically said that the key to freedom and liberation lies in the human mind. And only you can unlock, only you have the key to unlock uh, whatever torment is tormenting you in your mind. And she was famous for basically saying that she forgave what was done to her during the Holocaust, specifically Mengele and other monsters. And of course, she explains that forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget what they've done or that you uh, say that what they did was okay, obviously, but you forgive for your own sake so that you are not holding on to all kinds of poison and toxic feelings. You forgive for yourself in order to be able to move on. Now, of course, Hashem is the only one who forgives absolutely, completely and forgets, right? Human beings may forgive, but we don't necessarily forget. You know, that's a very, very deep place to go to. You know, one way that we can forget or help ourselves forget is by taking instruction from the book Tamar Devorah, which is in English, the palm tree of Devorah, written by Rabbi Moshe Cordovero. And in the uh, Tomer Devorah, it talks about the 13 Midot of Hashem. And the whole concept of this book is that since we are created in God's image, we can be like God. So in the same way that God forgives, we can also forgive others. And, they, um, and based on the, the 13 Midot of Hashem, for example, they give different, um, different ways in which we can do this. So, you know, the same way that when we make mistakes, God gives us time to repent and accepts our tshuva, even if it's imperfect, how can we imitate this? By giving people time to offer an apology, even if they hurt you. And when they do apologize, accept even half-hearted apologies. Another example, and I'm not going to th go through all of them now. Although God has the power to destroy us the instant that we sin, 
he holds himself back from doing so. So how can we imitate this? If you feel like saying something angry or hurtful, tap into your inner strength and hold yourself back from saying it. Here's another one that I like based on the word chanun, which is a word that we're going to see in this bracha, right? Chanun means to be gracious. Rachum is another word we're going to see, see, uh, read, which is being compassionate. So let me, let me just mention what these two mean, because we're going to go more into them in the prayer. So Rachum, to be compassionate, means that Hashem has compassion on all of these creations by providing food for the hungry and healing us when we're in pain. How do we imitate Hashem? When you see someone in pain, do whatever you can to alleviate their suffering. And finally, Chanun, which comes from the word uh, Hanan, uh, we, we say that what Hashem does for us is a matnat chinam. It's a free gift. It's way beyond what we're deserving. It's beyond the call of duty, what he does for us, even though we defy his commands or we ignore them at best. So Chanun means God does so much good for us, even when we don't deserve it. So how do we do this? Anybody who have teenagers in the house? (laughs) You do favors for people just because, because you want to be a nice person, regardless of who they are or whether or not they deserve it. Okay, so just a few ideas of how we can imitate Hashem. And um, only those who can forgive can be free. Back to Rabbi Sachs. Uh, Only a civilization based on forgiveness can construct a future that is not an endless repetition of the past. That surely is why Judaism is the only civilization whose golden age is in the future. And interestingly, I listened to Rabbi Sachs, somebody sent a video around where he was talking about uh, in last week's Parsha, this Parsha we just read, the image of Yaakov blessing his grandsons and this idea that Judaism is very future oriented, right? That we don't just live for ourselves, but we live for the future. We live for what comes after us. And we recognize that the greatest thing that we can do is to keep that connection, that vav from one generation to the other. That's our legacy. Uh, Each one of us has our time in this world to pass that on to the next generation And that's really where we um, gain eternity and immortality, immortality, immortality. Okay. So uh, just a couple of cute stories and whatever um, that I was thinking about that I wanted to share with you. And I didn't know when I'd be able to, but they're so funny that I think it fits in well here. Um, And that is, you know, we all need forgiveness. And we all need to understand one of the tools in Hakpada is that a lot of times we don't know the whole story. And we think we know uh, what the person said, what the person did. And very often, you know, we don't. And that's why we always have to be judging others favorably. And of course, we hope that people do the same for us. Because of course, as humans, we also make mistakes. So I want to tell you two funny stories that happened. So we had uh, 
we have some wonderful friends who have left Toronto uh, now, but uh, lived in Toronto, and they invited us over once for Shabbos lunch. And they said, why don't you meet us at our shul? So we were, I mean, I was pretty new to Toronto still, and um, I went to the shul to meet them. Now, the wife hadn't come. She'd stay home, stayed home to prepare Shabbos lunch. But the husband was obviously in shul, and I don't know if my husband was there or not, but I was sitting in the women's section. Anyway, and I couldn't see the men's section at all. Anyway, we come out of shul, and we're walking home towards our host's house, and the man, the husband of my friend says, so what did you think of the cousin today? Right? Sort of uh, interesting question. So I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, did you enjoy the davening? Did you, were you there for Musaf? I said, yeah. He said, well, well, did you hear the cousin? I said, yeah. And he said, well, did you enjoy the davening? I said, you know, what did you think of him? So I said, well, I don't know. I mean, he was fine. I didn't want to speak Lashon Hara, you know. I said, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, nothing special or anything. I mean, he was old. I mean, he, you know, I think he was probably in his 80s or something. I mean, you know, his voice was... Co- anyway, all of a sudden he goes, well, that was me. I was davening, right? That was me davening. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And he goes, so I guess you didn't like it very much. And I said, well, I mean, I... And he has a beautiful voice, by the way. I know this from being at their home for Shabbos. Anyway, it turns out that I was sitting in the wrong shul. Okay. I was sitting in the shul next door. You know where Jeff is and a good south? I had gone to a good south. Okay. They're like right next door to each other. So there's one of those Dundakov schools. I'll tell you one more that I think is hilarious. So um, there was a man who had been recently widowed. And a friend of mine had told me about a shidduch for him. And, you know, she said, maybe you'd like to mention to him about this woman. woman. So it turned out that uh, a few days later, my husband and I were walking home from his mother's. And this rabbi lives very close by. So I said, you know what, why don't we stop for a minute? I'll knock on his door and I'll ask him if he's, you know, interested in shidduchim. So my husband, of course, was embarrassed and tried to stay as far away from me as possible. <laughs> and so when I went to the front door, my husband was standing behind me and he couldn't really hear so well the interaction between the two of us. It took a while for this rabbi to come to the door. And when he did, he looks, you know, kind of like he'd been in the middle of something and everything else. So the first thing I said to him was, oh, hi, I'm sorry to bother you. So he responded by saying, why are you bothering me? Okay, now that was all my husband heard. Why are you bothering me? Anyway, and then I went on to tell him about the shidduch. And he said, you know, he's still waiting. He's not ready yet. Anyway, as my husband and I are making our way home, you know, he turns to me and he says, boy, that was really out of character. I said, what do you mean? He goes, wow. He said, like, he's such a nice guy. And I I can't believe he said to you, why are you bothering me? <laughs> but he had been saying to us, why are you bothering me? You're not bothering me. What are you asking? You're bothering me. <laughs> so, you know, just another example of how so many, so many things get lost in the translation. You know, we see things in such a thin slice so often, and we think we know what, what, what it's all about. But obviously, we certainly don't know. And taking it up to Hashem, Hashem is the only one who really 
does know the whole story and sees everything, not only the external situations, but also what's going on with us internally and where we're coming from and where we're going and where we're holding at this moment in time. <clears throat> okay. Um, so it's interesting. One of the questions that the rabbis ask is, why is the prayer on tshuva returning to Hashem followed by forgiveness? Shouldn't the order be reversed? Shouldn't it be that we say, I'm sorry, and only after we say, I'm sorry, Hashem uh, takes us back, that we can then return to Hashem? So the rabbis asked this question, and one way to understand it is that, you know, tshuva has to come from us. It has to come, not like the kid who, so, so to speak, says, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, I won't, okay, I won't do it. But the reason that they're saying I'm sorry is just to get by you, right? Just to get it over with, just to get what they want. So we say that you have to go through a tshuva, a process of tshuva, of turning yourself, right? Of realigning yourself, of wanting to be a different person. The, the, the um, three steps of tshuva, of course, are, first of all, regret, harata, feeling sorry, feeling pained by the fact that you did something wrong, did something against the king, against your father, right? The one who loves you. Then it's vidui, it's confessing. And of course, when we confess, when we speak, what we're doing is we're taking this, the sin and we're sort of taking it outside of ourselves. Because when you speak something out, you look at it outside of you, right? And the idea of speaking is that you're speaking to somebody outside of you. And so you're making it external to yourself. And thirdly, right, the idea is aziva rachet, which is leave the sin, that you don't want to return there again, that you don't want to do it again. And of course, last week we said, or two weeks ago, that teshuva shalema, which is a very difficult thing to do, it can take a lifetime, is the idea that you've been put back in the exact same situation, with the exact same temptations, and somehow you overcome. You don't do the same behavior. And that means that you've totally and entirely left the sin. We put it in... Uh, this worldly terms, it would be like somebody who's in jail and he's up, he's going up to the parole board to have to get early parole. And he wants to convince the parole board that they should give him not only early parole, but perhaps a shorter time of parole. So what does he do? He wants to prove to them that he was a model prisoner while he was in jail and that they should give him short parole or early parole because he deserves it based on the fact that he's changed. He's not the person that he used to be, right? He did got extra points while he was in prison. He did extra things for good behavior. And that's the idea that before we ask Hashem for forgiveness, we first go through this process of tshuva, of wanting to come back to our true selves. And only then can we say to Hashem, I'm not the same person that I once was. So please forgive me. So first we need to be motivated to return and then the forgiveness comes. Otherwise, the Rambam says that 
without this process, it's like somebody who goes into a mikvah. A mikvah obviously is a symbol of purity, of purifying oneself. But they're still holding on to this sheretz, this disgusting, impure, creepy, crawly, a little, you know, slug. In other words, they're still holding on to that part of them that they never really addressed or said, you know, this is the source of why I do what I do. I want to examine it. I want to turn away from it. I want to be a different person, Hashem. So if a person doesn't do that first and go through that process, again, it's like trying to purify yourself, but you're still hanging on to that thing, which is the reason for your downfall. Okay, so let's look at the prayer itself. This is the third tefillah in the uh, request section, right? We started with the prayer for intelligence, intellectual ability. And we said that anybody who has a brain, the first thing that they should recognize is that they have to do tshuva and recognize that they've gone wrong because that is the, again, the condition of the human is that we don't, we just, we, we, we just make mistakes. And then of course, uh, the next bracha after da'as is that we do tshuva. And then finally we have this bracha of slicha, of asking Hashem for forgiveness. So let's look at that bracha more um, closely. So it says for anybody who has their sitter open, Salaf lanu avinu, forgive us our father. And just notice the words, how they change depending on who we're talking to. So we have slicha when it comes to our father. Kichatanu, because we sin. And a hate is a certain type of a sin. Mechal lanu malkenu, again, the word pardon us. Malkenu, our king. Kifashanu, and fesha, pesha is another term for sin, okay? Kimochel v'soleach ata. And notice how the order of the words are, are, are switched. We started with slicha and then mechila, and now Hashem is being called mochel v'soleach. So we're putting the mechila before the slicha, okay? Um, for we have willfully sinned, for you pardon and forgive, baruch Hashem, blessed are you Hashem, Hanun Hamarbeli Sloach. And there's the word Hanun as opposed to Rachum, which is also important to notice. Two terms that imply compassion. But Hanun is going beyond the call of duty, doing it even when we don't deserve it, right? Hanun Hamarbe. Hamarbe means Rabim, right? Much. Blessed are you, Hashem, the gracious one who forgives abundantly. Okay, so let's look a little bit closer now at the bracha. So we're asking for slicha for, to our father because we sin. So whenever it comes to our father, we refer to our um, sins as a chait. What's a chait? So the Rambam explains that a chait, which we call a sin in English, is really like a mistake or a... He describes it as somebody who's shooting an arrow at a target and he misses the target, right? He, instead of shooting a bullseye, he just goes off a little bit. And a hate is very often associated with something that's unintentional, right? You didn't mean to, you wanted to do things right, but for whatever reason, you know, 
You just didn't. And the idea here is that when it comes to Hashem as our father, just like a parent, he's always cutting us slack, okay? Just like a parent doesn't want to believe that their child is doing things intentionally, right? But that it was unintentionally, unintentional. They were tired. They were hungry. They were hanging out with the wrong crowd, right? They didn't realize the ramifications of what they were doing when they took out your car and started driving around before they had their license, right? You ever had that happen to you? Um, but, uh, you know, there's, they just didn't mean it. And that's the idea of salach lanu avinu ki that our father is always looking to forgive us and looking at the things that we do as something that was done in error. A father always sees his son's sins as unintentional, even the intentional ones. He tries to find some kind of good reason for them. And so when we talk to Hashem, we're asking Hashem for complete forgiveness as a father, and not just forgiveness, but that he should erase the sin entirely. Okay, now the king is different, and that's why we use the, the word mechal and fashanim, okay? Mechila um, is a different type of forgiving, and it's the forgiving that happens with a king. Now, in terms of our relationship with God as king, we are his servants. And the sins of a servant, even if they're unintentional, are seen by the king as intentional. Total rebellion. There's no room for, I was tired, I was hungry, right? It's rebelliousness. And therefore, forgiveness when it comes to the king is only partial. The lack of loyalty that the sinner demonstrated is erased. But the act itself is not erased. Because there's really two parts to a sin. There's the sin itself. And the second part is the disdain for God. In other words, that place inside of us that says, you know what, I don't really care what you want me to do. We don't see his demands as important. And when a person has that, so obviously it's much easier to sin. And the king doesn't want to put up with that. What do you mean you don't think my commands are important? I hold life and death in my hands. I'm the king. I have absolute power. Okay. Now, Pesha, like I said, I don't know if I said that, but, but Pesha always uh, implies an, an intentional sin, and hate is always an unintentional sin. So as we go on in this bracha, the question that, that the rabbis ask is why are these um, adjectives reversed? Why is mochel before soleach? So the reason that they give is we list the greater attribute first because we're praising God. You, God, are the mochel v'soleach. And being a mochel is greater. Why? Because a mochel pardons definite transgressions and then forgives less serious sins. The less serious sins is the mochel, is the soleach. So the fact that he pardons definite transgressions, meaning things that are done intentionally, 
I don't care what you're telling me to do, God. It's not, it's not, you know, it, it, there's a certain disdain, a certain ignoring. So the fact that God, uh, you know, forgives that, that shows his greatness. And back to Tamar Devorah, in the very first chapter of Tamar Devorah, it describes God as Melech Ne'elav, which means he's the insulted king. He's constantly being insulted. His honor is constantly being undermined. You know, we wake up every morning and we go through our day and it's as if, um, I'm, I'm sure I said this in other classes, but I used to have a teacher who would act it out for us. He said, it's like Hashem's pushing a button and we're these little dolls and he's pushing this button that's keeping us going, right? It's like a, a um, what's it called? Electronically controlled a dolly. And the whole time the dolly's walking around and doing what it's doing, it's slapping the one who's pushing the button, slapping that person and kicking that person, the one who's, you know, responsible for allowing the doll to move around. So we are very much like this doll, that God is the constantly insulted king, but he allows himself to be insulted because he, he is exceedingly patient, Right. Kind of like how anybody who's a parent of teenagers has to be right? during those difficult years where, you know, we're getting abused and we're getting insulted. And I don't know about you, but I used to say my self-esteem went down to an all time low. You know, I had one daughter, I'd walk into the house and she'd say to me, you went out looking like that. You know, that was enough to like ruin my day. (laughs) ruin my day right but you know the point is is we keep putting into the bank account even when it hurts you know it's the closest we can get to being like Hashem the Melech Ne'elav the insulted king but we don't cut them off we don't say I never want to see you again we keep putting into the emotional bank account and the physical material bank account because we hope we hope that the day will come when they'll turn into good adults, right? When they'll do teshuva and return to their true essence. Okay, so that's part of it. Um, okay, and then the bracha ends, Baruch Hashem, Hanun Hamarbeli Sloa, that you are God who is Hanun, who is so compassionate that even when we don't deserve it, even when it's way, you know, we've insulted you to the max, you are so abundantly ready to forgive us. Again, why is the word mechila not used here? It's used, um, that we use that first word, salach, again, the one that goes together with our father. Salach meaning, I'll forgive you even though it's intentional. Um, Because again, we're ending on the note that we want Hashem to look at us as his children in the way that, that a parent would say, you know what? Even your intentional sins, I look at as unintentional. Because I know that you don't really want to behave this way. Mechila implies knowing rebellion. That we do what we do because we want to and we're rebelling. And that, of course, is deserving of death in the eyes of the king. So we end with the gentler 
Lislowaf of of the of the father who's always ready to take us back and is always ready to look for a uh, reason for why we did what we did and and you know uh, cut us some slack. So Baruch Ata Hashem Hamar Okay, just a few more ideas. Okay, um, so when we say Hashem forgives abundantly, what do we mean by that? So there's three ways that we can see that Hashem forgives abundantly. Hamar So one is uh, the idea that we said a couple weeks ago is that a person can have deep thoughts of tshuva and in a single moment he can learn, earn olam haba, right? And we talked about the executioner who was responsible for killing Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. And Rabbi Hanina said to him, if, uh, sorry, the executioner asked him, if I remove some of the cotton that's on your heart, which was a way of torturing a person even more and making their death more painful and slower. If I remove that, can I earn, can I go to the next world? Will I go to the next world? So here's somebody who perhaps his whole life was executing innocent people, or of course, probably not so innocent people too, but in this case, a tzaddik, a great Jew. And Rabbi Hanan, Rabbi, uh, Hanina ben Trajan says yes, and he takes the wool off of, of the great rabbi, and then he jumps into the fire with him, and a bus pole comes down from heaven and says, Rabbi Hanina ben Trajan and the executioner have both earned olam haba. So the idea of Hashem forgiving abundantly means that even in one moment, a person can come back to Hashem, and Hashem will forgive. There's a story in the Talmud about Reish Lakish, if you've heard of him. Reish Lakish was a, a highway robber. He was extremely strong. And Rabbi Sachs in this week's Parsha talks a little bit again about the idea of tshuva. And he says Reish Lakish was an example of somebody who joined the rabbis, who did complete tshuva, and used now his strength that he used to use to uh, torment people and steal from people, etc., uh, there are stories in the Gemara that he used it to save different rabbis from situations where they were, where their lives were in danger. So there we talk about the idea of tshuva shalema, that you use the same trait that you use negatively for something positive. This is another example of Hashem forgiving. Um, okay, another way that Hashem forgives us abundantly is that when we do tshuva because of the hardships that befall us. Okay, this is a lower reason for why a person does tshuva, right? Sometimes the way that Hashem gets us to do tshuva is by pushing us down to a place that is so difficult and so challenging that we feel we have no other choice but to apologize, but to say, what have I done to deserve this? You know, why me? Why... And very often what happens with a person is obviously they start looking into their deeds, right? The Rambam says that if things are coming upon you that are difficult and challenging, you should be mefashfesh your mycine. You should scrutinize your deeds. So this is something that people do naturally. Even the, the least God-fearing person, right? When they're in a foxhole, they may call out to Hashem and surprise themselves, 
but that is the time that Hashem will forgive us, even if it's coming out of coercion. And of course, there are people who spend their whole lives living one way, but in the last moments of their life, they do teshuva. So when we say Hashem forgives abundantly, we mean that Hashem doesn't say, what do you mean? Now you're doing teshuva. Now, you know, two minutes before you die, you decided to come back to me. No, Hashem accepts that teshuva completely, even though the person perhaps didn't live their life in the way that they should have. So hear her tshuva, having thoughts of tshuva, returning to Hashem. Hashem is always waiting and ready um, for that tshuva, even from the most wicked, even from those who have really done terrible things. Even if the deed isn't completely erased and the ramifications of it, the person himself is forgiven. You know, we have this in the story of Yosef. I'm not going to get into it, but that's one of one of the amazing things I was reading by Rabbi Sachs, that's all about the whole Yosef story is really about when the when Yosef says to his brothers after Yaakov dies, and of course they're worried that Yosef was is now going to take revenge on them. And Yosef says this famous line, which is, listen, you, you know, you did what you did, but you have to understand. You were just puppets. Hashem is the one who makes things happen. Hashem is the one who wanted me to come down here. And so it's not only about what you did. It's, there's a higher way of reading this story. And because we live on those two planes with Hashem, and that's why we have the ability to do tshuva and ask for forgiveness. Because there's an idea that even though an act that you might have done wasn't the best act, that somehow Hashem wanted it to happen um, through you. You were the one who was chosen because of where, you know, uh, where you are in your spiritual journey. And we do what we do. And of course, we're taken to account for it on one level. But on another level, it's all part of Hashem's plan and moving the world closer to its end through us, each one of us as a player in that play that's unfolding. And by the way, it's a very unique way of seeing history. Uh, another thing that Rabbi Sachs explains that the Jews were the first to really see history as moving towards an end, as moving towards a goal, that no other civilization had this idea of time. That we're, that we're part of this incredible story that's unfolding. People did not see time that way. That was a Jewish uh, gift to the world. Okay. So if there was no tshuva, tshuva is complete rachami. Because if not for tshuva, our sins would just pile up. Right? Every night we have the opportunity to do tshuva. We have, we have the opportunity to look at our day and erase and be forgiven for whatever we might have done wrong in that day. This is a gift. It doesn't make sense, Chuva. It's something supernatural, right? If you've done something wrong, it should be there forever. But God says, no, not only can I change you, but I can change things. You know, nothing is stamped. Nothing is unchangeable. Things can shift. Hashem loves us more than a parent loves a child. 
And therefore, the more a parent loves Hashem, when we do tshuva out of ahava, we said, then the more, uh, the more a person loves Hashem, the more he fears that his unique relationship will be harmed if he sins. So he doesn't want to. He, he's worried about destroying the relationship or marring it in any way. And that's what motivates him not to, to keep away from Averas, to keep away from those things that the father says or the doctor says isn't good for you. But let's say a father here, because that's the relationship that you don't want to do anything that will disrupt that incredible love and connection that you feel. Okay, there's just an interesting idea that I wanted to bring up about, you know, responsibility judging others favorably uh it's just an interesting idea that you know we say that if you see a Talmud Chacham right somebody who's a Torah scholar or a Tzaddik if you see him sin if you see him going into McDonald's right and sitting down and having a Big Mac you know he's having a Big Mac attack the Torah tells (laughs) us that we have to judge him favorably we have to assume that he did not sin. Okay, now there are two reasons for this. Now you could say, what? Is this like a mind game? Is this like naivety? Is this like being, you know, stupid? I mean, come on, you saw it with your own eyes. So first of all, there's two ideas. The first idea is, let's say he did do something. So the first thing you have to assume about somebody who's, who's on the side of good is that they, they did shuva by morning right, that they went back over their deed, and they realized it was wrong, and they did total tshuva over it, but that's one idea, but here's another idea, so if you see a righteous person who consistently behaves in a highly moral fashion, and you see him commit an uncharacteristic negative action, we're commanded to give him the benefit of the doubt, and search for some justification for his actions, For example, Marlene sees her Orthodox rabbi entering McDonald's and knows that her rabbi is strict about observing the Torah laws. So she has to assume that the rabbi had a valid reason for entering the restaurant. Maybe he needed to use the restroom. Well, that's not hard to figure out, right? And this was the nearest location for him to do so. But we are required to go even further than that when it comes to judging favorably. Even if you were to see your rabbi actually sitting down and having, you know, not a filet of fish, but a Big Mac, okay? (laughs) A Big Mac, okay? You and you see him put the food into his mouth. You still have to try and find justification for the rabbi's actions. So there actually is a famous story like this. The most common explanation is that the rabbi has some kind of health issue and at times has to eat the nearest food available to him or face the possibility of threat to his life. I think people with diabetes or different uh, types of illnesses, if they don't eat immediately, they can die. Anyway, I think there was a true story like this. But the point is, is we have to go to the nth degree of our imagination to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. And it's interesting because the few times that I've actually done it in my life, I was amazed to realize that 
Very often when you use your imagination and come up with the most ludicrous excuse for why a person did something which seemingly seems so blatantly wrong, you actually end up being closer to the truth than you were when you just relied on your eyes and your bias and your mind and what you see. Because part of being a Jew and being a spiritual person is that we don't rely on our eyes. We recognize that our eyes can deceive us and that very often we need to look deeper. And that's true of our senses in general, that our ears also can deceive us. We hear what we want to hear, right? And we very often don't go deeper. And that's part of the discipline of being a, a, a religious person, following all of these incredible interpersonal laws that the Torah is full of. It's to make us deeper and wider and able to recognize the shortcomings and limits to what our eyes sees and what our ears hear, right? In Mishpat, is it, no, in Shoftim, it says, you know, that you have to, um, oh, whatever, I can't look it up now. But the idea in Shoftim is that you have to set up police officers at all the uh, orifices, so to speak, of your body and make sure that you are careful with what comes in and what goes out because our senses are have to be um, very much policed and recognize that we can, uh, we can do a lot of averas interpersonally by relying on our senses and not relying on our seichel and what God wants us to do, which is to judge others, but set it, right, with righteousness. Okay, um, how are we doing with time? Okay. Okay, why do we knock on our hearts? Can you see me? I'm knocking on my heart. Salachmanu avinu. Everybody, this is what you do during this bracha. Salachmanu avinu. Ki chatanu, machalanu, malkenu, ki fashanu. Okay? When we talk about the chay, we knock on our heart. Why are we doing this? Ow! Okay, we do this because the heart is the place where sin originates. Tapping of the heart is to arouse it from lethargy. Rashi says, an upheaval in a person's heart is greater than a thousand blows. So we're trying to do it to ourselves, Rather than Hashem causing us to do tshuva or ask forgiveness out of fear, right? God forbid you have a court case and you're shaking in your boots, you know? Even if you're just fighting a ticket, right? A parking ticket, right? We're supposed to imagine these things on earth so that we can imagine what the big court case in the next world looks like. But even in this world, we want to arouse ourselves. We don't want Hashem to have to do it. So we knock on our heart because we are trying to wake ourselves up. Forgiveness is a gift because really when we sin according to justice, we deserve to die. Okay, this is an interesting idea that I saw in a safer about Elul. So this is a parable about the three servants of the king. And the king is going out of town and he leaves three of his servants to guard his wine. Now, while he's gone, one of the servants ends up drinking an entire bottle of wine. 
Another one drinks half a bottle of wine and then seals it back up. And the third person doesn't drink any of the wine. He's his loyal servant. He doesn't touch a drop. So the king comes back and of course he sees what's happened. And what happens is he begins to, of course, the, the, the guy who drank all the wine off with his head, okay? The guy who didn't drink any wine, he rewards, he gives them, you know, a thousand rubles. But the guy who drank the wine halfway and then put the top back on the bottle, he's awarded 2000 rubles. So of course the other guy's like, what's going on here? Like, excuse me, like, I didn't touch a drop of it. I'm your loyal servant. I, you know, what are you giving him more of a reward than I? So the king explains, he says, you know, he is a greater, he's greater than you because he was overcome by desire. He started to do the wrong thing, but he stopped himself. And that takes more greatness and more discipline than you who didn't touch a drop. And that's the difference we always say between the Balchuva and the Tzadi, right? The Makom Shebalechuva Omdim, Tzadikim Gemurim, Lo Omdim, or cannot stand, right? That in a place where a Balchuva stands, somebody who's tasted the wine, somebody who's experienced life in all of its glory, if you want, or uh, the opposite, right? But somebody who comes back and resists the temptations, resists the desires, resists certain forbidden pleasures, he is much greater than the person who never tasted anything, who never experienced what uh, life can offer in a, you know, pleasurable but negative way. So... Again, the idea of tshuva is it's like a cord that is severed. If you imagine a cord going from you to Hashem and it's cut. And when we sin, we, so to speak, cut the cord, the umbilical cord. But when we do tshuva, we retie the cord. And even though the cord isn't as perfect as it once was, what we've done is we've made the distance even shorter between us and Hashem the connection is even greater because we've left and we've come back. And of course, you know, there is no human being that doesn't sin. So even a tzaddik whose sins are on a very fine, much finer level than ours, right? And are, and are not so distanced as ours might be. Everyone, as long as they're alive, has that ability to reconnect and retie the rope and come closer and closer to Hashem. Okay. Important idea. Hashem does not leave the Jew when he sins. Sometimes we give up on ourselves because we say, again, like I started with, what would Hashem want to have to do with me? I'm, 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 I'm a terrible person. I did something terrible. And I even did it purposely. I mean, I just didn't care. I don't care what Hashem says. I'm just doing this, right? Whatever it might be. Right. So when we think, you know, Hashem has abandoned me, that's mistaken thinking. Rather, it's we who ignore Hashem, but Hashem is always with us. He's as close as our breath. So, of course, people ask the question, well, where was Hashem during the Holocaust? 
Now, this is a huge subject. And of course, the main answer that people answer is, where was Hashem? Where was man during the Holocaust? In other words, Ayeka, where are you? Hashem gives us the free will to be able to create the world that is created. And of course, we know that Jews are very often the victims of the tyrants and the evil in the world. But the another idea that we say that it's not Hashem's absence which leads to mis- misfortune, but rather our failure to recognize his presence. And this is the idea that when the Jews as a nation, as a people, take steps away from Hashem, remove themselves from Hashem's protection by abandoning the Torah, by abandoning the mitzvot, by abandoning that which makes us unique. It's not that Hashem punishes us. It's that we create a space. We create a distance. We create a vacuum between us and Hashem. And nature abhors a vacuum. And now all of the anti-Semites of the world have a place to be able to rush in and do what they want to do, which is get rid of God. And we, as representatives of God on this earth, are we are always the target. And of course, Sadiqim, you know, at Sibur is Sadiqim Benonim Rishaim, right? It stands for Sadiqim Benonim Rishaim Sibur. The Jewish people are all in it together. Of course, we know in the Holocaust, great Sadiqim died together with Jews that, you know, were leaving Judaism and had nothing to do with it anymore. And were joining the communists and joining the radicals and doing all kinds of things that were uh, the antithesis of Torah. Um, some of them intentionally, some of them not intentionally, just by virtue of <laughs> mistaken uh, temptations, ideologies, Right, they say in those days the Yetzirah was not a physical pleasure, a Yetzirah for pleasure and decadence, which is the type of Yetzirah we're living in today, but it was an actual intellectual Yetzirah. It was the Yetzirah of ideas, of you know, well, Judaism isn't doing it, so maybe communism will bring Mashiach, right? Maybe that will bring a perfect world. So people were leaving for all kinds of reasons, but that's not the point. The point is, is that. We are the ones who create connection or distance. Hashem is always there wanting connection. When we say, where are you, Hashem? Why did you leave me? It's not Hashem who left us, but sometimes it's us who takes a step back. And Hashem is our shadow. So when we take a step back, it's as if Hashem takes a step back. And now there's two spaces between us. You know, just on this subject of anti-Semitism, it's, it's a simple idea, but maybe for just as a, a quick review of the foundational idea, which is that, you know, when we were at Mount Sinai and we accepted the Torah, <clears throat> we basically got married to God, right? God was the chassan, we were the kala. And this is a marriage that God said can never, sorry, <laughs> can never end in divorce, right? It's a marriage that can never be annulled. Hi, it's my birthday. This is such a heavy subject. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so whenever we leave God throughout Tanakh, we're, it's always called adulterous relationships, right? That we go off after other men, so to speak, right? We're the Kala. That we have these adulterous relationships. 
with other isms, with other peoples that we assimilate into, that we want to be like. And basically, God, the chassan, says, I'm here. I'm always here. I'm just waiting for you to come back from your flirtatious, uh, you know, uh, vacation or whatever it is that you went on. I'm always here. I don't move. You're the one who moves away from me. And when you move away from me, there are ramifications and consequences because you made a bris with me. You made a co covenant with me. You made a promise to me that we are symbiotically connected in a way that can never be disconnected. And that's why we say that a Jew can never convert to another religion, right? That once a Jew, you're always a Jew. Your neshama cannot be changed. You can fool yourself. But that pintalayid, that, that neshama, is, is always there. And so it's us, it's we who ignore it, or we who step away from our purpose and our mission in this world. And when we do that, God says, listen, I'm here. I'm waiting for you. I haven't moved. But you're the one who's moved, whether it's mentally, emotionally, or realistically in that you've created a vacuum so that the anti-Semites of the world, the haters of, of goodness, the haters of godliness, the haters of morality, of virtue, which is what the Jewish people brought into the world, are able to rush in and do their work. And God, so to speak, allows them to do it because God created a world where he doesn't interfere where he goes by the natural laws of nature, where he allows human beings free will to choose. And so, you know, that's our greatness, but that's also the tra our tragedy and why we Jews have to go relive over and over again the consequences of our mistakes as a nation. And of course, individually, this plays out in our own personal lives. Okay, so Baruch Atah Hashem, who was the who were the angels talking about? Who did they say this prayer about? Baruch Atah Hashem Hamarbeh They had witnessed the episode of Yehuda, Yehuda, who would become the progenitor of the kings of Israel when he asked for forgiveness, when he um, acknowledged his guilt in the episode with Tamar and confessed, he was granted complete forgiveness. Okay. Um. All right, I think that...